Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. That's where we'll pick up today. Luke's gospel begins with the story of two mothers and two miracles. Both are stories of God's grace and God's power. One involves a barren older woman past childbearing age. The other involved a young unmarried virgin in her early teens. God's grace and power would be demonstrated in the unable and in the unmarried. The child of the first mother would be the forerunner of the Messiah. We know him as John the Baptist. The child of the second woman would be the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pick up the narrative this morning in verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Three words sum up the gap between these two mothers and these two miracles. Six months later. And we pick up the story here in the sixth month after Elizabeth has conceived. And the first thing that we notice here is this visitation. Guess who's back? Well, Gabriel's back. Luke says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth. So Gabriel has come back and this time he comes with the most significant birth announcement of all of human history. And he didn't deliver this announcement to the city of Jerusalem. He didn't take it to the land of Judea, as might be expected. But rather he went to Galilee and to a city that the Bible calls Nazareth. To call Nazareth a city is a stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's quite an overstatement. Uh, We were there back in 2010. It's really not much of a place. And even back in that day, it was nothing more than a tiny village of maybe just a few hundred people at the very most. It lay about 70 to 75 miles, almost straight north, but straightly northeast of, of Jerusalem. Dr. Kent Hughes says this of Nazareth. He says, Nazareth was a shoddy, corrupt village and was overrun by Gentiles and Roman soldiers. Hence, that was why it was corrupt. 
Chuck Swindoll called it a remote Jewish village that had been commandeered by the Romans and turned into a garrison of soldiers. That was what it was like at this time when Gabriel visits Mary. Now, it lay about 1,150 feet above sea level, and it overlooks this phenomenal valley, the Valley of Jezreel, also called the Valley of Esdralon, also called the Valley of Megiddo, and you might recognize it as the Valley of Armageddon. And this valley is lush, beautiful, fertile, uh, it, it's the breadbasket of that area and produces abundant crops right there. But the soldiers had taken over. It was a perfect outpost for them. And so uh, that lent itself to the vileness and corruptness and the immorality and the vice, all of these things that would take place because, as one scholar said, soldiers and vice are frequent bed companions, especially when isolated from the rest of society. And so the thought of a virgin living just outside a military base was almost laughable. You just wouldn't expect that, which speaks volumes about Mary's character. Later on, you remember when Andrew went and found Nathaniel to take him to Jesus? What did Nathaniel say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? So it did not have a good reputation. But it was so obscure and so insignificant, if you read your Old Testament from cover to cover, you'll never see Nazareth mentioned. The city's not mentioned in the Old Testament. In fact, in the Jewish writing called the Talmud, Nazareth isn't mentioned. In fact, if you go to the most famous Jewish historian of the time that we know as Josephus, Josephus never, ever mentions Nazareth. That's how insignificant and obscure this place was. But the angel Gabriel skips over Judea and Jerusalem. He ignored the temple, the holiest place known to the Jews, and he comes to this nondescript, nowhere, obscure village called Nazareth, and he enters the lowly home of a teenage girl named Mary. Dr. John Phillips said, The angel found Mary in a humble peasant home. He came from a world where walls were made of jasper and gates were made of pearl. The virgin's home probably had little furniture and was separated from domesticated animals by only a pole and a curtain. It was heated, no doubt, by a small turf fire, and such sparseness must have astonished the visitor from glory, but such were the homes of peasants in those days. Luke tells us that Mary was a virgin. The Greek word for that is parthenos, and it doesn't just refer to a young girl. It refers to a girl who has had no sexual relationship whatsoever with a man. Now, Jesus would inherit from his adoptive father, Joseph, the legal right to David's throne, to be referred to as a king in that respect. But he inherited his physical descent from David, from his mother Mary. So both Mary and Joseph were from the line of David, 
and both legally and physically in every legitimate way, Jesus would be the son of David that was born to be Israel's genuine king. So the angel Gabriel shows up, and I want you to notice, first of all, he gives basically a common greeting in verses 28 and 29. He essentially says, hello, Mary, greetings. That's really all he says. Now, some have speculated that maybe he toned down his greeting a little bit, because six months earlier when he greeted Zacharias, Zacharias was struck with fear. So he just says, greetings. Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you which gives her a clue, gives us a clue, that her character had been under the scrutiny of heaven the whole time. God knows. God sees. God always knows, and He always sees. She was the recipient of God's favor, of God's grace. And her response confirms that. In verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the statement, tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, her response is different than Zacharias. Her response is basically, to put it in our language, what in the world is going on here? She, she didn't understand, all right? It wasn't that she doubted God. It wasn't that she wasn't ready to be used by God. She just didn't understand what was going on. Now notice the blessing, an uncommon blessing from Gabriel in verses 30 and 33. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Just like Noah in Genesis 6 and verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, Mary had found grace, favor in the eyes of the Lord. And the, then Gabriel makes six statements to her. He says, you'll give birth to a son and you'll call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord would give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end to his kingdom. Wow. <laughs> How would you like to know in advance what your child, you know, things like that. But Jesus, this child, was going to be the fulfillment of all that God wanted to do. And so in verse 34, Mary responds, and her response is not one of unbelief, like Zacharias, but the fact that she was unmarried, she didn't understand. How old do you think Mary was? Would you be surprised that most scholars believe that she was between 12 and 14 years old? A young teenager at the most. Weddings, marriages were arranged back at that time. She, she didn't understand. She's betrothed to Joseph, which meant that during that year-long period, she had to prove her purity to him and to all of her family. And during that time, Joseph's job was to provide a home for his bride to, to, to live in once they were married. They had been faithful to each other. They knew that. They had been faithful to God. They knew that. And so she wanted to know, how's this going to happen? And so Mary says to the angel in verse 34, how can this be since I'm a virgin? So Gabriel gives the explanation in verses 35 through 37. His answer is actually threefold. He tells her, first of all, of the plan of God. 
He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. That word overshadow, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That word means to encompass or to influence. In short, God was going to supernaturally cause her to be with child. And you can be sure that there had never been another birth like this one before. And there would never be another birth like it again. God was going to do this. Jesus would clearly and without question be the son of the living God. So Gabriel told her, first of all, the plan of God. But then he told her some proof. Gave her some proof. Wanted to prove to her that what he was saying was absolutely true. And so he says in verse 36, And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. There's proof, Mary. God's already at work. He's already working upstream, already working on someone else. And he points out Elizabeth's old age, the fact that she couldn't have children, but she's going to have a child. So there's some proof, Mary. And then thirdly, he tells her of the power in verse 37. Because nothing, nothing will be impossible with God. Gabriel knew that firsthand. He had stood in the very presence of God. He knew the power of God. And you know, for those of you that are my age or older here this morning... We ought to be the rocks that everyone else can look to because we've seen the power of God, right? We've seen it. We've seen God move. We've seen God answer prayer. We know His Word is true, and so young people and young Christians and children ought to be able to look up to us and and think, I want to be like them when I'm older. They're phenomenal faith. They're their phenomenal dependence on God. I mean, every day we ought to grow stronger in our stance because we've seen what God can do. We know what God can do. We live in a world of unbelief, but because we believe, we know our God can do anything. And that's the way Gabriel was. Gabriel just matter-of-factly tells Mary what's going to happen. Mary, nothing's impossible with God. It's by His power. But look how Mary responds. She responds with a declaration. Verse 38, she gave in at once. She said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, or your Bible may say the handmaiden of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. She did what Paul tells all of us to do in Romans 12.1. She presented her body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God for this great work of bringing the Son of God into this world. She essentially said, let's do this. Let's go. And verse 38 concludes by saying, and the angel departed from her. As quickly as he had appeared, he disappeared. He left Mary standing there just as he had left Zacharias. But something is completely different from that occasion. You remember when the angel left Zacharias, he left him standing there in his unbelieving silence. Because he didn't believe, he couldn't speak and probably couldn't hear. 
But when he left Mary, he left her standing there in her unbridled exuberance and excitement. Zacharias couldn't speak because of his disbelief. But now Mary couldn't speak, not because she had been prohibited to speak, not because she was unable to speak, but who is she going to tell? Really? She can't go tell her parents. She can't go tell her family. She can't go tell her friends. She certainly can't go tell Joseph. Who is she going to tell? The minute that she would open her mouth to share her story that she was she was pregnant by divine conception, no one's going to believe that. I mean, Joseph would have known, that's not my child. That's not my child. He's never going to buy that far-fetched story that somehow an angel showed up. Oh yeah, right, sure. I mean, if she said a word, she would open the door to the stigma of unwed motherhood and the appearance of having committed adultery, the punishment of which was Death by stoning. You remember in John chapter 8 when the Pharisees caught the woman in the act of adultery and threw her down in front of Jesus and said, Jesus, what are we going to do with her? The law says we should kill her. So Mary couldn't say a word. And it's really hard for us to understand what she was going through. Because you and I live in a culture in this country, in a society that condones sexual experience before marriage. Tragically, sadly, regrettably, that's the world that we live in today. And it's almost like it's just a given. Well, you know, that's just what kids are going to do. That's just what people do. In fact, the rate of people living together right now outside of marriage is blown through the roof. And they don't even keep statistics anymore because it's too common. But in Mary's day, it wasn't common. In her day, being a virgin was like the highest prize and the greatest gift that any woman could have given her husband on her marriage day. And by the way, can I just say to you that are not married that it still is a prize. And it still is an honor. And if you've already messed that up, then stay pure from this day forward because God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and he can forgive our mistakes. I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. I'm just trying to tell you what God teaches us in his word. Every person in this auditorium is a sinner. But if you haven't made this mistake that I'm talking about, don't. And you'll never regret that. So Mary said to him, how will this be? And the angel said, here's how it'll happen. And Mary was probably ready to tell somebody, but she couldn't tell anybody except one person, Elizabeth. And so the next thing we see is confirmation in verses 39 through 45. Now at this time, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country to a city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. We really don't know where Zacharias and Elizabeth lived. We can be pretty sure it wasn't too far from Jerusalem, so it would have taken Mary at least three or four days on foot to have traveled there from Nazareth. And verse 39 says she went with haste. She didn't waste any time. She had news that she couldn't share with anybody else except the only other lady whose husband Gabriel had spoken to and who was experiencing a miracle in her life as well. And so in verse 41, came about when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby, John the Baptist, all right, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. It was an instant sign from an inspiring spirit. And in verse 42, Elizabeth blessed Mary, blessed the child in whose presence she now stood, even referred to Mary's child as my Lord, and in verse 44, confessed that her baby leaped for joy. I like the way Dr. Kent Hughes captures what must have happened when those two mothers-to-be got together. He said, and I quote, Think of the mutual encouragement and fellowship that was theirs. Both were miraculously expecting Elizabeth was well past the nausea that likely lay ahead for Mary. They became sisters in experience as well as in soul. Both their unborn babies had been announced by the same angel, Gabriel. Both their unborn sons had mutually fulfilling prophecies made regarding them. John would make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Imagine the women's exchange. They speculated over what the scriptures meant. They prayed together. They talked about birth and babies. Encouragement flowed between them. It must have been something. <clears throat> Back in verse 45, Luke tells us Elizabeth blessed Mary, not only for what was happening, but also for believing and trusting God to allow it to happen. And as soon as Elizabeth was done, Luke tells us Mary began to sing. And the song that she sung, whether melodiously or by word, is referred to as the Magnificat based on her saying in verse 46, my soul magnifies or exalts the Lord. Now what was her song about? Well, it was about the goodness and greatness of God. Not just to her, but to every generation. Notice what she says. First of all, she says some personal things in verse 46. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So her proclamation was personal of what God had done for her, but it was also practical. In verse 50, his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear Him. He has done mighty deeds with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. So it was practical for everyone. This mercy, this blessing was not just for her. She understood that. The gift of her son was for everyone. And then notice 
that her song is prophetic in verse 54. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Now, how could she say that? He has given help to Israel. I mean, when she said those words, the nation of Israel had fallen on incredibly hard times. They were under Roman domination. Their homeland had been invaded again and again and again. The Jewish people were dispersed uh, all over the then known world. Evil Herod was sitting on the throne of David. How could she say God has given help to Israel, his servant? Well, this is prophecy. Prophecy is just history that is written in advance. And she's speaking these things as if they were, had already taken place. She's viewing the future work of God and saying it's as good as done. And then she declares her joy over what God has done. And then it ends. She basically says God's promises are permanent. Amen? Yeah. God's plan is perfect. And God's power is without peer. And there was nothing more to say, nothing more needed to be said. There wasn't even a need for an amen at the end of it. And in verse 56, Luke says, Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. You don't have to be very good at math, but she came to Elizabeth in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She stays three months. That makes nine months. It can't be very long until the birth of John the Baptist. So there's always been the question, did Mary stay until John was born? I don't know. Because the Bible doesn't say. There are those who think, well, yeah, she had to have stayed, probably stayed, and probably helped out. Others say, well, if she had stayed, Luke would have said so. But the Bible just doesn't say. All right? Dr. John Phillips adds a postscript to this whole event. He says, two women, <coughs> an old one and a young one, blended their voices, and Zacharias sat there dumb. Not much has changed, guys, right? <laughs> Probably never in all the nine long months did Zacharias' dumbness afflict him more. You got to remember, Zacharias, because he didn't believe what Gabriel told him, he doubted what God would do, was given this sign where he could not speak a word until what God said would happen, happens. And that's exactly what happens. So here's Mary, here's Elizabeth, they're crying and hugging and talking and sharing, rejoicing and, and singing, and Zacharias can't say a word. And maybe couldn't even hear a bit of it either. Now that's where we're going to stop today. But let's make some application. Can't leave with just information, we need some application. So how do we apply what we've looked at today? Well, remember this, number one, God is always watching. God's always watching. The angel told Mary in verse 30, you found favor with God. God was watching. And let me tell you, God is watching right now. He's watching you. You say, well, was God watching last week when? Yeah, he was watching. Was God watching when, as a child? Yes, he was watching. God is always, has always, always will be watching. So don't forget that. Secondly, his presence follows obedience. His presence follows our obedience. Gabriel told Mary in verse 35, the Lord would be with her. 
Now the Lord had been watching her, but now he's going to come and be with her. And you say, well, I, I want the Lord to be with me. Well, if you want the Lord to be with you, then you have to be with him. You can't just go out and live life the way you want to live it and then walk in here on Sunday morning and say, God, please forget everything I've done this week and bless me anyway. No, the presence of God follows our obedience. So we need to be obedient. Thirdly, submission determines mission. Submission determines mission. Mary said, let it be done to me according to your word. She submitted to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. And then God could use her to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Submission determines mission. Instead of worrying about how God's going to do something or when God's going to do something, we just need to say, God, do it. And some of you may not yet be ready to say that. You may not be at the place Mary was in our text. But submission determines mission, so we'd, better, we'd all better learn to submit. Fourthly, there's nothing like being with people of mutual faith who believe the same things. Again, let me quote Dr. Kent Hughes. Like Mary, we must fly to the church because there we find people like Zacharias and Elizabeth who share a mutual faith believing the same things. Folks, there's just something about the people in the church. They believe the Bible. They love Jesus. There's a commonality. There's a relationship. There's a fellowship not like any other place. And by the way, that's why you ought to be involved in some kind of a small group. Because in a small group, you can build relationships with fellow Christians. You can fellowship together. You can experience the commonality with people that share a mutual faith and believe the same things that you believe. And if you can't find a small group that fits you, then start one that fits you. Because I guarantee you there will be other people just like you that will come. And if you need some help in starting one, just get a hold of, of one of the staff and we'll help you in any way we can. But the relationship and the support and the encouragement you'll receive will be such a blessing to you. They will be the people that you can run to and share with. Don't sit there at home in despair and, and in depression because no one called me today. Nobody cares about me. Make some connections and get engaged. It'll lift you up. You'll find your Zacharias and your Elizabeth there that can encourage you. And you can say anything that you want to say. You can open up your heart to those people and it will be a blessing to you and a blessing to them. In fact, you may be somebody else's Zacharias or Elizabeth. It's not enough. It's not enough to just come to New Hope and into this auditorium for an hour on Sunday morning. That's not enough. You need to get connected to other people where they can bless you and help you and encourage you. What would Mary have done if there hadn't been an Elizabeth? Would have changed the whole story. A fifth application. Praise is always the proper response. Praise is always the proper response. That's Mary's song, the Magnificent. You know, folks, everything can be a God thing. Everything. 
He either sends it or he allows it. And I know that there are bad things that happen in the world. But those are things that God can take and use for his glory and for his purposes. Because Romans 8, 28, God can work all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So whatever situation you're in today, you need to praise God in it. Because praise is always the proper response. And even if it's a bad thing, God can use it to bring good. Because you see, God's promises are permanent, His plan is perfect, and His power is without peer. So we come today to a time of decision. What's your next step? How can you put some of those applications into your life? I don't know what the next step is for you, but you do. And I would encourage you to take the next step. Whether it's to accept Christ for the first time as Lord and Savior. Maybe there's a step before that. Maybe you need some teaching on what you need to do in order to accept Christ. Maybe you've already accepted Christ, but you're not engaged in serving Him actively. What's your next step? How can you get involved in service? Take the next step. Draw close to Him as we stand and sing.